Joining me for today's interview is Bill Belgard. Together, we will be interviewing Patrick Finneran. Patrick Finneran has held multiple senior executive positions at the Boeing Company, including Vice President and General Manager of Harrier Programs, Vice President and General Manager of the FA-18 ENF, Vice President and General Manager of Naval Aircraft Programs, and as President of Boeing Support Systems, a $7 billion business that provided a complete spectrum of defense services. After his retirement from Boeing, Pat served as President and CEO of Saberliner Corporation. Currently, Pat is President of Accelerated Performance Solutions, an independent business consulting company. Pat is a retired U.S. Marine Corps officer and a Vietnam combat veteran. Thanks for joining us today, Pat. Oh, Steve, it's a pleasure to be here. Pat, you've had some really, you know, led some extraordinary changes within uh, companies. Uh, particularly in Boeing, you were involved in some big changes in naval aircraft programs, uh, support services. You've also been a member of the Jura Board with Lord Corporation and overseen some changes there. I'd like you just to kind of take us through maybe some of the highlights of those uh, of those changes. Those are the three that I'm most familiar with. Well, there's one I'd like to start with first, and that's the uh, the F-18 programs. Uh, before I had all naval aircraft programs, I was privileged to be the program manager for the F-18 series of, of airplanes, the uh, the A's and B's, which were pretty much in this in either in fleet or in in service uh, in a modification uh, the C's and D's which were in production both uh, domestic and international and then the ENF which was in the early stages of development when I took over the the series of programs so it was, it was a it's a huge challenge to figure out how to organize for that kind of activity and and yet uh, use the talent that I had in a very effective way without having to have a, a several groups of people, but just to do it with one leadership team and, and know how to use that one leadership team to uh, look at these three different programs. And we were able to do that. We were able to come up with a, a performance management process that let us look across the board from F-18As and Bs all the way to the ENF development and test and, and really out in the future to the potential for the F-18G. We were able to do this because we had incredible collaboration internally uh, within, first of all, McDonnell Douglas and then Boeing. Uh, great support from the functional staff, great support from the leadership. We also had an industry team called the Hornet Industry Team. It was uh, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, who were the two primary uh, people on the airplane, uh, but also Raytheon, who was very important with the radar programs and then General Electric, who, although they were a government furnished equipment supplier, integrated with us because we needed that close integration with the engine and the airplane. And that Hornet industry team was incredible in the way they worked together. It was the most unselfish participation of industry teams I've ever seen. Uh, and then our Navy customer. Uh, the Navy, McDonnell Douglas had let the Navy down badly with a program called A-12. And when A-12 was canceled, as it should have been, uh, the Navy's plans for the carrier deck were in trouble. Fortunately, McDonnell Douglas had been working on this advanced version of the F-18 uh, called the ENF, which was a much more capable airplane than the original F-18. And, and we were able to, to, to bring that in and explain to the Navy this could be the answer and the Navy embraced that opportunity. And we had absolute total transparency between us, our uh, industry colleagues, and the Navy on everything we were doing. We had one plan, everybody knew the plan. We had one management process, everybody except GE, because they, were, they had to report to the government, was part of that management process. We had weekly in-depth meetings on our progress. And those meetings were attended by representatives from Northrop and from Raytheon and from the Navy. So uh, our, develop, our operational test team and our developmental test team of pilots were joint Navy and Boeing pilots. 
So anytime anything happened, everybody knew about it right away. And uh, the collaboration between me and my Navy counterpart was exceptional. I, I never experienced that before or after. Uh, we would talk every day and we would sit down uh, like we're doing here. We didn't have this wonderful Zoom meeting, but we would sit down and he would have the same set of data that I had. And the, the, the data we were using, one set of data to, to manage the program. And we could go through that set of data and we could look for trends that we needed to, to highlight and pay attention to. It was fantastic. We um, had two major challenges. One was called wing drop. Um, and as, as one reporter asked, did the wing fall off the airplane? Is that what you mean by wing drop? And I said, no, sir. No, sir. Wing drop is an aerodynamic phenomenon where at a certain point in the flight envelope, the airplane makes an uncommanded roll in an unpredictable direction. He said, oh, that doesn't sound good. I said, no, it doesn't. It doesn't sound good at all. And um, as a matter of fact, it had made the uh, Washington Post front page above the cover with about a four by six picture of the airplane saying F-18 and E-F likely to be canceled because of wing structure. Uh, none of that proved to be true. We were able to figure out what caused the, the wing drop problem. Again, great collaboration. We created a blue ribbon panel. We had participants from NASA, Notre Dame, the University of Tennessee, uh, former congressional staffers, uh, aerodynamicists from GE as well as from, uh, from Boeing. And uh, we solved the problem, we found the root cause and we were able to, uh, to fix that and the airplane went on to fly great. The other problem we had was the forward fuselage. The original forward fuselage on the first 65 airplanes was basically the F-18C forward fuselage. And it, it really didn't allow the airplane, it would not have allowed the airplane to develop to its full potential. So we told the Navy we can put a composite forward fuselage on and they said, we're broke and, uh, and they weren't kidding. Uh, so we said, well, listen, what if we fund it? And uh, we convinced uh, our leadership at, at Boeing to fund uh, uh, more than a hundred million dollar development project. And uh, we did that with the Navy agreeing that if, if we were able to pass all of their tests with this new forward fuselage that they would then start paying us back for it. So uh, ships at 66 rolled out with a composite forward fuselage, which not only made the airplane uh, better in terms of strength, but easier to maintain. And it also provided additional volume in the nose of the airplane for things to come in the future, like the F-18G and then now the F-18 ENF Block III. So uh, those, were, those are some of the highlights there. The good news is uh, we signed a contract for this uh, development program in uh, August of 1992. And uh, we were, the, the contract schedule was to complete uh, in the fall of 1999. We completed OPAVAL uh, in the fall of 1999 on time. And we uh, completed the program on cost, actually very slightly under cost. So uh, we were the only ACAT-1 program, ACAT-1 is a, a large DOD program that I'm aware of that's ever finished uh, major development on cost and on schedule. And for that, we were, our teams were awarded the, uh, the Collier Trophy for the most significant achievement in aeronautics and astronautics for 1999. And I'm so very proud of the team that, that did that. We did it because we had uh, a, a robust performance management process that allowed us to see where we were at all times. We had a great culture. Uh, internally, the airplane was the boss. Whatever we needed to do to make the airplane right, that's what we did. The second thing was that we didn't worry about where shareholder value came from. We knew where shareholder value would come from because customer satisfaction and the airplane that would result from customer satisfaction, we knew would create shareholder value. We also had employee involvement. We were doing breakthrough things with the help of people like Bill Bellegarde and Steve Rayner. 
our hosts today uh, to create high performance work organizations uh, to get the IPTs, our integrated uh, product teams, to behave like HPWOs. Uh, we embraced earned value management at its concept level. Uh, we didn't use earned value management as some uh, government tool uh, that, that they could uh, evaluate how you did a month ago. We used it in a real-time basis for making sure that our produced hours were really produced hours. We didn't want to have expended hours that weren't produced hours. At least we didn't want to have expended hours that weren't produced hours that we didn't know about. And finally, we embraced diversity. Uh, diversity in every respect, not, not just uh, race and gender, which were clearly part of the whole concept of diversity, but diversity of thought uh, to, and diversity that, that came from having these four industry teams working together and, and minding each other's business to some extent, which, which again was unprecedented. And I, I never saw it after that. It was fantastic. People talk about inspirational leadership. And somebody once asked me what inspirational leadership was. And I said, well, it's not my personal charisma. We know that. Uh, I don't smile enough, as Mr. Bellegarde will tell you. But, <laughs> but what it is, is creating the environment where people feel free to be their best. And, and collectively, not just within our company, but collectively between the Navy and, and the four big companies, we created that environment where we encouraged people to be their best, to take risk. Everything didn't have to be perfect. It had to be right. That, in my mind, was a true example of where we had a culture of inspirational leadership. So that was that. Um, that followed with Naval Aircraft Programs. F-18 was in, was in good shape. Uh, we had a couple of great guys that followed me that kept it on track. We had the CH-46 program, uh, aging workhorse of the Marine Corps. We had some great guys that, that were in love with that airplane that did a great job with it. Uh, the T-45, which is still the, the mainstay of Naval Aviation Training today, the AV-8B, the V-22, and, and the competition for MMA. So the two big deals there were first the V-22. I had had that job not long when we had our first V-22 accident. We were going through operational tests and we had a, a very unfortunate accident in Marana, Arizona, where we killed about 22 Marines uh, by having one of the airplanes get into something called Vortex Ring State. Uh, simply uh, flying into your own disturbed air as a helicopter and, and not being able to uh, break the sink rate in the airplane at the ground very hard, broke up and caught on fire. The V-22 had, had a sort of checkered past. It had been canceled once before. We had resurrected it, and now this accident brought back all those bad feelings about the early days. And we had a great commandant of the Marine Corps in those days, Jim Jones. Uh, in my mind, one of the better commandants of the Marine Corps, but I'm prejudiced because he's also a friend. And I got a call from the commandant shortly after that accident, and he says, Pat, what are you doing Thursday? And I said, whatever the commandant wants me to do Thursday. So he said, we're going to go out and we're going to get in the V-22. And he said, well, I've invited the head guy from Bell, because V-22 is a Bell-Boeing joint venture. He said, uh, we're going to go get in that airplane and show people we have confidence in it. I said, it sounds like a great plan. So I flew out to Channel Lake. We linked up and we jumped into V-22. And in my Marine Corps days, I would spent a lot of time riding in helicopters. And V-22 is a big horse. It actually weighs more than an F-18. And uh, I expected it to try to get into the air like a CH-53 does, kind of taking its time. It leapt into the air like a Cobra. I was so impressed at, at the power and the agility. By the time we were at the end of the runway, we had gone from a vertical takeoff to level flight at about 300 knots at 3,000 feet. And I couldn't help but recall coming out of Quezon one day in a CH-46 taking ground fire. 
and we weren't going 300 knots and we didn't get to 3000 feet. <laughs> and all of a sudden I fell in love with that V-22. Uh, and, and so the other, the other, so we got through those accidents and we did, again, we, we got a, we had a great team in Philadelphia that, that worked on understanding what some of the problems were because it was a, a avionics systems kind of problem. It wasn't an airframe problem. And then we had another accident that was similar and, and I immediately went to Philadelphia after both those accidents and talked with the team and reassured them and you know, my confidence in them and their abilities and that we were gonna work together internally. We were gonna work with uh, the Naval Air Systems Command and the Marine Corps, we were gonna fix these problems and we did. And so the next challenge was getting the airplane deployed to combat. The, the Marines were doing a little head scratching on, on that because brand new airplane and taking it to combat as soon as possible. And we had done that on the F-18. The first three operational F-18 ENF squadrons all went to combat in Southwest Asia, all operating off the carriers. So the Marines came to us, the Boeing and said, hey, you guys take the lead, work with the Bell guys, show us what you did on F-18 and get us to war. And, and I golly, our team, our logistics team did a fantastic job. And, and we were able to, to get not just the first combat deployment out on time, but the first three. That was our, our V-22 experience. The P-8 was originally called MMA, Multi-Mission Maritime Aircraft. And it was a competition between a uh, upgraded version of the Lockheed P-3 and what Boeing chose to put out there was a 737 airframe. And uh, it was Lockheed's territory. They were the incumbent. And the P-3 guys loved the P-3 because they could fly that sucker low over water with their four engines and feel confident and comfortable. My assessment was that we were not very well positioned and, and I decided to make some changes to the team and, and bring in some uh, more, I uh, brought in a Navy Admiral that used to work for me on another program, retired Navy Admiral who was a fixed wing uh, fighter guy. And he said, well, what do I know about P3s? I said, what you know about the Navy that I care about? And uh, brought in uh, Tim Norgard and his brother who are both P3 wing commanders and great guys. And we sat down one afternoon and we just spent the whole afternoon trying to figure out what is our marketing strategy? Uh, I said, look, we lost on a Stovall, which became the F-35. What did we do wrong then? What did Lockheed Martin do better since that's who we're competing with? Why don't we take a page out of their playbook and, and see what we can do with it? We actually borrowed a 737 from Boeing. And, and fortunately the Boeing 730 test pilot had been an F-18 ENF test pilot. He was a Navy guy. And he was able to take that airplane out and take it through its full envelope demonstrating the eye-watering capabilities of the 737. We must have flown 40 or 50 decision makers in the airplane. And after that flight, each of them was absolutely convinced this was the right airframe. On a requirements side, we had a special team that worked the classified and unclassified requirements. On the classified side, they loved the P3. We, we had to demonstrate that we could actually do the mission better. And we did that by actually building a simulator uh, that we put all the, uh, the tactical air coordinators in there and that we showed them how all this could be integrated better. So we're flying the pilots in the airplane and we're putting the, the, the NFOs in the simulator and we're bringing the classified stuff in. And uh, finally it came down to let's write a damn good proposal and let's write a competitive price and expect that we're gonna perform well. And the rest is history. Damn fine airplane and it's doing the mission great. How did you get your team, it was a small team with a big job to do. How did you get those folks uh, pulled together to, to make all that happen even before you had the proposal written? Well, again, it was a matter of, of sometime you, you have to, I'll go to a Jim Collins approach. You have to find the right people 
put them in the right seats on the bus. Mm-hmm. They'll help you figure out where the bus ought to go. Right. And uh, the, the team that, that sort of I inherited when I got there, there's nothing. They were all fine people. They just weren't the right team for that job. What and, What do you look for? You know, what What was the right the right mindset and the right level of energy for that kind of job? Unselfish, inclusive, team oriented winners. Yeah. Okay. Now, people that, that were enthusiastic about winning. And that obviously, obviously they could work together because they did a tremendous amount of, amount of, uh, of uh, good work in a short period of time without uh, a lot of money to do it. They, uh, they did. And, and they, they were very creative. Uh, mm-hmm. That simulator we put together was, uh, was not the final simulator, obviously, that we delivered to them <laughs> on. Right. It was a right. patchwork quilt but it was good enough. Remember I told you, even back on F-18, it wasn't about being perfect. It was about being right. Yeah. We may talk about this a little bit later or something in some other context, but uh, this whole notion of of, you you can't always be perfect, but you gotta be good enough. Pat, you you talked about the fact you had a very disciplined process that you followed. You talked about the fact that collaboration was really the key um, to the success. Um, you talked about how there was a single plan that you kept everyone focused on a specific direction, that you had a great performance management system in place and you used earned value management as a part of that, able to develop a strong sense of customer satisfaction, high performance teams, and the importance of diversity of thought as you went through this whole process. As you kind of uh, look at at, the, at those components, how, how would you say that you sort of, I mean, how did you play your role? How did you get that stuff in place in that organization? I have to say it starts back in the Marine Corps. Everybody, including me, wondered how fungible my 20 years of experience in the Marine Corps was going to be coming into industry. <laughs> and I found it, it was absolutely irreplaceable. Uh, because in the Marine Corps, it's team-oriented, unselfish, collaborative winners. Uh, that's the Marine Corps ethos, and, uh, and we're brothers, and we all work together. I mean, people always think about the Marine Corps as an autocratic or authoritarian organization. Well, yeah, there is a command structure, but when you're actually operating, uh, as I did uh, when I was in, in responsible for the aviation combat element of the 4th MAV in North Norway, uncharted territory for all of us. Uh, you can't be the dictator. Uh, you can't be the, you cannot be the single point failure. So what you have to do is work with the team to figure out some very key things up front. First of all, what is it you're trying to do? What are the values that you're going to embrace on this journey of trying to do that? What are the social and cultural norms that you're going to, that you're going to face and, and accept and, and live with? And then how are we going to keep track of everything? What, is the, what are the, the data, the metrics that we're going to use? And when you're facing wind chills of minus 90 Fahrenheit, and by the way, at minus 40, Fahrenheit starts getting colder than centigrade. Uh, you can't make mistakes because you'll kill people. Yeah. I've been in, in two environments in the Marine Corps where people's lives depended on things that I did. One was combat in Vietnam, and the other was was two back-to-back deployments to North Norway, where I, I took 1,200 Marines to North Norway and brought 1,200 Marines home. And that was my internal objective. Certainly, we wanted to accomplish the military objectives. We wanted to accomplish the training objectives. We wanted to accomplish the political objectives. But my little, in my heart, personal objective is I wanted everybody to come home alive. And we had some frostbites and some broken bones. And it's a tough environment. But everybody came home. And, uh, and so all of those things... Came every time I 
get a new job in industry, those things would all come back to me that, hey, if we don't work as a team with a focused objective and we don't, we don't have a good solid set of values that are going to underpin what we do, the rest doesn't matter. You know, the rest is just immaterial because I'm, I'm consulting for a, a group right now that doesn't get that. All they want to talk about is, is the process. And I'm saying the process without the culture. If you don't have the right culture, the, the, the values, the norms, the goals, if, if those things aren't right, <clears throat> excuse me, aren't right, then all of the systems and processes are really irrelevant because they won't work. And, and uh, I'm dealing with a, another company now, and all, all they want to do is worry about the stuff. And I keep telling them the stuff isn't going to work until we get the culture right. One of the things that uh, we noticed about you when we were working with you, Pat, is that probably also from your Marine Corps career, among other things, but uh, and I, in uh, Vietnam, you were flying an A-6 side-by-side uh, setup, a dive bomber, you come and screaming out of the sky at 300 knots to do your mission almost straight down. Uh, and then pull up sharply and get out of there. You had to one, you, you can't be scared of anything uh, and uh, not scared enough that you can't do your job anyway. And so I never saw you be afraid of anything <laughs> and, or anybody uh, when you were doing your job. You had the, the confidence of a Christian with four aces everything, every time you went into something. Uh, and also that you, you knew the value of an airplane that the pilots could trust, that the flight officers knew they knew that that would would get them through the mission and get them home. And that was real important to you in all respects with all the programs that you did. Absolutely, Bill. I mean, I have two sons who are Marine Corps aviators today. And uh, one's a a, a colonel and he's an air group commander and the other one's a student flying the T-45. And from the time I was a, a, a flight student until now, anytime we, we lose an airplane, especially if we lose a pilot with it, even though I don't even know him I mean, any, anymore, you know, I don't know anybody, I'm still, my I was retired, I still feel it. Uh, and, and my first job was the Harrier program. And unfortunately, when I took over the Harrier program, we were losing far too many Harriers and, and we were able to, to, to fix that to some degree, not as good as we, I wish we could have. But uh, as I reminded the, the leader of Rolls-Royce military engines after we lost one too many Harriers, I said, I'm, I'm really tired of the newspaper saying McDonnell Douglas Harrier crashes in this river. I wanted to say that Rolls-Royce engine causes McDonnell Douglas <laughs> in this river. Because right. I want you to feel the pain I'm feeling. And I want you to feel it. It's got to be personal to you. Otherwise, you're not going to have the, the, the real motivation to fix it. Right. I always took this job personally. And, and sometimes I guess that wasn't maybe the uh, traditional industry thing to do. But I didn't care. I cared about the people. I cared about the people who worked for me. And I really cared about the people who flew those airplanes. Yeah, and maintained them too. Yeah, absolutely. All all those kids. And it didn't matter whether they were in the Marine Corps, the Navy, the Air Force, the Army. God bless them out serving their country. Can you tell us about the transition to uh, the services, uh, defense services role? That was a big change. It was was a a bigger change than I thought. Uh, I asked for that job. Uh, we, when, uh, my, my time was sort of up, it was time to rotate out of the Naval aircraft programs. I, I went to talk to Jim Albaugh and, and I, I guess they were debating about who to put in what job next. And I said, well, if it'll help the debate, I'd like to take over the services business. And he said, well, it makes it easier for me if you want to do that, because that's kind of what we were thinking. You know, it, it looked like a, from a distance, it looked like a pretty good business. It had just won the Ballridge Award. Uh, but sometimes looks are deceiving. When I get there, I find out that 
that Bowers Award-winning program had five Reach Forward Lost programs. For our guests on the podcast, a Reach Forward Lost means that the finance people see that the program is in such bad financial shape that it will never recover. And they go ahead and take the loss early, which for financial accounting is better. So we're sitting on five Reach Forward Loss programs uh, we've got unhappy customers. I'm being summoned to Tinker. I'm being summoned down to Fort Walton Beach. I'm being summoned to the Pentagon and to the White House because we're also behind schedule on the Air Force One rehab program, which was not our biggest profitable program, but as you can imagine, it was our number one program. Right. And and so uh, I, was- I, uh, I was pretty unhappy in, in my first few months in that job. Uh, because uh, I didn't realize that I was in a, in a pretty big mess. But all those things that Steve talked about a few minutes ago, you know, of, all right, what what's worked in the past? Right. Well, let's get the culture right. Let's figure out where we're going with the goals. Make sure we got the right values. Let's put the right systems and processes in place. And then let's execute to it. Now, to do that required getting people who were willing to do that. And, and mm-hmm. the team I inherited really, uh, they, they didn't have that winning spirit, uh, is all I can say. All good people, again, they just, they, they weren't ready to, and maybe they were tired, who knows, but, but it doesn't really matter. I, I had to go out and find a, a group of people who, were, who really wanted to embrace this. And it wasn't hard. Because there, there were we were so loaded with talent in that company, and probably still are. We needed we needed new life on the team, right? And so it took us about eighteen months to to really figure out all these things. Uh, so we we walked in, we were at about three billion dollars, and we kind of sat there for about the first eighteen months. We we just held our own. We were uh, we made some progress in, in convincing the customer we were going to make positive changes. Uh, we were able to, to get corporate to accept one of those reach for loss programs because it was their deal, not ours. So we got that off our plate. We still had to fix the airplane. And uh, I had good, good program managers. They just didn't really know how to run a program. They were good people. Uh, a couple of them are very senior people in the Boeing company today. But we'd have our little Friday afternoon uh, seance. Uh, we, these five programs would meet with me every Friday afternoon. And uh, we weren't really reviewing the program. We were teaching program management. Mm-hmm. I guess I brought the key guys off my leadership team. Guys like Phil Schwab, who you all know. Right. Ass, I mean, really talented people who understood how to run businesses. And um, we taught these, these young people how to, how to run programs and, and today they're running big chunks of, of Boeing defense and I'm very proud of them. The other thing we had we had we sort of we'd been that program had been sloppy there were 300 aged contract closeouts. Uh, what that means is you've got this contract that's completed but you haven't closed out all the paperwork and sometimes there's there's money left over in the contract and sometimes it comes to us and sometimes it goes back to the customer. And the customer's kind of unhappy because Aged meant they couldn't use it anymore. It just went to the treasury. But right. if it came to us, we got to use it. And, and, and that actually gave us a little bit of a cushion because out of that 300, a big chunk of it did come to us. So it gave us a little bit of time and we had some supplier issues. We had to sort of, you know, change, change a few suppliers. We had suppliers that just didn't really want to be part of the team. So it was a, it was a kind of a tough 18 months. Uh, And, uh, but in that time, we really built a strong team because we spent a lot of that 18 months with you. (laughs) And I remember some of those Friday afternoon sessions, program management. Yeah. Well, you and Steve and the the McIntyre's, another consulting couple that I I just really admired. And then we brought the Bain company in to help us. And, and, uh, you know, we we came up with uh, a, a a set of a good set of cultural norms and then the right systems and processes. 
uh, to include putting earned value management into the services business, which at first everybody said will never work. <laughs> once we did it, they found out it works really good. Um, and bottom line is that we went from this $3 billion low double-digit margin team to uh, when I left in 2008, we were $7 billion in the mid to high double-digit margin. We had all uh, the customer evaluates you on something called a contractor performance assessment report. Uh, and green is good and blue is better and purple's fantastic. And we were all blue and purple by and large. We expanded internationally. We had uh, acquired, uh, we acquired a, a domestic uh, services business, a, a business that, that was a supply chain management called Avial. Uh, we acquired part of Al Salam in Saudi Arabia and we were able to, to get some more work over there. Uh, we did a joint venture in, in the UK. Uh, we, we really got creative. Uh, we, we created our own international branch inside the, the services business. We uh, were able to, to start picking up what people call performance-based logistics contracts where we're responsible for making sure that the airplanes are available to the customer. And we did that with the, uh, the British Army Chinooks and we did it with the Air Force C-17 and we did it on the F-18 with FIRST. So uh, it turned out to be absolute. I learned more about business in that business than I did in everything else because this was, this was truly a, a, a business. The rest, the rest were businesses in the sense that we had profit and loss, but this had every dimension of, a, of running a business. And, and again, the team I had, when I looked around the room, I was awed by the, the wonderful people I had, men and women, young and old, African-American, Caucasian and Asian. Mm -hmm. I loved it. It was, uh, it was just a thrill to come in and go to work with those people every day. The word diversity is too often viewed too narrowly. Diversity goes beyond race, gender, and age. It's about diversity in cultural background, in thought, in experience, and professional training. Inclusion is creating an environment that promotes unselfish, inclusive, team-oriented behavior. Basically, all of us focused on the goal at hand, working together to achieve that. Pat, one of the things that you and I had a chance to work on uh, a few years after uh, this was uh, putting together the program, a book about the program management best practices for the Boeing company. And, one of the things that struck me when I was working with you on that was uh, the first third of the book really is all about leadership. And then it goes more, the second half is more really around the best practices uh, themselves and, and then a conclusion at the end. Could you just talk a little bit about the importance of leadership and program management and how you view that? Absolutely. Uh, you know, leadership is a word that's thrown around a lot. and and yet. I don't think most people know what it means. Uh, and that's kind of a bold statement. I appreciate it. It's a bold statement. But it's, meant to, it's meant to challenge. Now, do you really know what leadership is? Uh, it's not command and control. That's not leadership. Are there times when you have to use that technique? Yes. But that's not leadership. Uh, I think leadership is almost a spiritual quality. It's not something you're born with. Uh, it's something you learn. Now, I went through the best training ground for leadership there is called the United States Marine Corps because that's the way they teach leadership. Leadership is a personal thing. I can say it has a spiritual aspect to it. Mm. When, when the Marine Corps talks about esprit de corps, you know, the spirit of the corps, that's what they mean. Uh, the, the whole context of, of never leave a wounded Marine on a battlefield. Uh, it's always personal. And, and so I, I think leadership starts inside you with a personal belief and a personal desire 
to achieve whatever it is that you're trying to achieve. And if you, if you don't have that, with that task, you probably shouldn't be trying to do it. Leadership also is, is an awareness that you operate as a leader at, at sort of a, an umbrella level. You cannot be the leader and the, the chief bottle washer. You know, you, you've, when you're the leader, you really got to focus on three things. Father Jenkins, the president of Notre Dame, when he took over Notre Dame in his inaugural speech, probably summarized it best of anything I've ever heard. He said, as the new president of Notre Dame, as a leader of Notre Dame, I've got three things I have to do. First is to protect the essential culture and values of the organization. Second, make sure the place is well run by choosing the right people to be on my leadership team so that they can take care of the day-to-day -day business. And the third thing is to be the face of Notre Dame, good times and bad. To me, that summarized the whole concept of leadership as I perceive it. And, and that's kind of what we tried to portray in that in the book. You know, that it, it's, leadership is emotional. It's not mechanical. And if you don't feel it like right this moment, if you don't feel it thinking about it, you're not there in my mind. Uh, when you're in North Norway and it's 90 degrees below zero Fahrenheit and you're using Korean War vintage heaters in your tents, yes, tents, as, as the commander, I, I had to put on all the right protective gear and get out and walk through the camp in the middle of the night to make sure all my Marines were safe. Now, there are other people doing the same thing. There are other people had that job. Each unit had its own leaders, but I would have never forgiven myself had something gone wrong and I hadn't checked. So it's it's that personal, and and it's and you can't lead from the back. You got to lead from the front. Um, leadership is also about holding people accountable. Yourself first. You got it. When you screw up, if you don't admit you screwed up. You just lose lots of credibility as a leader. Uh, if leadership has, has a huge level of humility in it, where on one hand, you've got to be outgoing and you know, bold and courageous. On the other hand, you've got to internally have a lot of humility and realize you cannot do it by yourself. And you've got to really you got to pick the people on your team, especially the people who report to you, who you know you can work with and trust so that you can let them do their jobs. And, and if you have to start diving down from your you know, elevated view of, of the whole, whole landscape, if you've got to start going down into the battlefield, uh, you better ask yourself why you're there. And maybe it's necessary, but you, if you stick around down there, you lose sight of what's going on around you. You know, we, we did a fantastic job with the services business on creating a vision. We being Mr. Rayner, Mr. Bellegarde, and our team. Uh, the, the vivid description process, our team embraced it. It worked for us. It led us from there to our values and from there to our our five main strategic goals that un, unchanged, even the year after I left, it didn't change the, my successor left it alone mm -hmm. because it was so solid. Uh, so once you can put that cultural umbrella in place, then you can build your systems and processes inside. Pat, it's uh, like some of the listeners here are gonna be facing issues in their organizations and they may need to really be thinking about a big change, particularly given you know the current environment and the things going on with uh, COVID-19 and the impact it's having on the economy. What would be just some you know key ideas, key advice to a, a leader that suddenly finds themselves in a lot of turmoil and uh, trying to figure out how to make sense of this and how to go forward with their business? 
the, the first thing I would say is try to figure out where you are. Uh, mm-hmm. Because if you don't know where you are, you're not going to know where to go. So, uh, and, and to do that, find people you trust in the organization. And, and by the way, it doesn't need to be off the org chart. Sometimes the people you trust are down on the shop floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a great relationship with the union workers on the F-18. Many of them were former military. They believed in the airplane like I did. Mm-hmm. It's amazing what people will tell you when they trust you. And, uh, and so find out what's really going on in the organization. Then take a look at what your resources are. Now, know, know where your limits are, what you can, what you can do. What, what have you got? What are your financial resources, physical resources, your, you know, just in general, what resources are available and, and where can you go get more if you need them? Uh, and, and then from there, once you kind of know what's going on, I would start with either internally or maybe bring in someone like you and, and Bill. Uh, I would I would lean to, to come sort of a combination of those two because you want somebody that's not in the middle of the fray that can kind of look at it objectively and, and help you start sorting things out. And you know, once you sort things out and start putting them in groups, and it's not a hundred things anymore. It's five groups. It's sort of easier to start working with that. And now you go into this process of, okay, what's our vision? What are we trying to do? What kind of values are we going to embrace? What's our strategy going to be? And by strategy, I'm not talking about tactics. I'm talking about sort of strategic vision under the vision. What's your strategy going to be? You know, in our, in my case, it was, uh, you know, uh, first of all, protect what you've got, protecting, expand what you've got, and then second, start growing into logical adjacencies, and then worry about the out, out your stuff a little bit later once you, you know, get your feet on the ground a little bit better. Uh, and and then from there, uh, make sure you got the right people in the right seats. And then start putting together your detailed strategies, your detailed tactics of what you're going to do, your plan, your operating plan. Pretty much what we did at Lord Corporation. Yeah. Do you want to, do you want to say a few things about, about Lord? Because that was a kind of a different role for you. You weren't, you weren't the guy leading the charge. You were, you were the guy that sort of helped get the charge established, if you will. But uh, could you talk a little bit about that? So we had had... Uh, a company uh, come in uh, out of the blue and, and offered a bias. And, and they, they offered us what we thought was a lot of money. And uh, long story short, it didn't work out. And, and, and thankfully it, it didn't. It was, it was not a good match. And, but, but what we learned from that was uh, that our financial structure was awkward for a buyer. Uh, the, the Lord company structure uh, was awkward for a buyer because it, it really, Lord does two things and they were all intermeshed as opposed to being sort of identified. You know, we had our, our chemical piece and then our aeromechanical piece and they, they weren't clearly organized and we had a lot, of, a lot going on in research that probably wasn't going to do much near term. It was a leftover legacy approach. Uh, and, and we had a, a young CEO who was under a, a, a lot of pressure. Uh, one of the finest CEOs I've ever had the privilege to work with, and that's Ed Osplanter. Uh, and Ed, uh, Ed and I agreed to do a, a mentoring program. Uh, he came to me and said, hey, you've been down this road a number of times can we talk? We talked a lot. And uh, all the highlights we've talked about here on this program, we went into significant detail. Uh, we were, our sessions were eight and 10 hours long. We weren't an hour long. Um, and two great things came out of that. One is that, that Ed took all the things that, that I had learned and talked about 
and he applied his own background and his own experience and his own knowledge, especially his knowledge of Lord. And he muted, mutated those just a little bit, just where they would fit into the Lord culture. Or in some cases, move the Lord culture in a, in a better direction. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was wonderful to see somebody not just parrot my words, but to take that conversation that dialogue we had and, and make it his own and use it so effectively. I was, God, I was thrilled. It was a, one of the best experiences in my, in my professional career. Um, and so now we're in a better position. Uh, the trustees decide it's, it's time to sell the company. So we, we restructure the, we have the financial structure of the organization we restructure Lord, we put ourselves on the market and we sold the company for a phenomenal amount of money to a really quality company. And you know, we, we added so much value in this process. We added, we added value to this country. Uh, we, we helped the electric car company business. I mean, Lord did so many things in the automotive and aerospace world, the, the whole notion of uh, in-flight motor balancing, and, uh, vibration suppression on helicopters, and, and then the stuff they did on the, the chemical side. Lord was a phenomenal country with company that added so much value, and Ed, as a CEO, brought out the best in that company, in my view. Yeah, and you know, I think one of the things that's um really great about that example, that story is I think a lot of times that uh, CEOs don't necessarily look to try to really learn something new, you know, to really learn from the experience of someone else whom they respect. And that sort of mentoring relationship you had with Ed played an important role in the, in the ability for Lord to achieve uh, the great things it did. Well, Pat, uh, this might be a good uh, point for us to wind up this portion of the interview. Um, I really want to thank you again for taking the time with us. Steve, I have had a blessed life and a blessed career. And anything that I can share that might help somebody else, I think that's terrific. On behalf of our entire team here at Ascension Transformation Solutions, we would like to thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website, where you can find the show notes for today's episode. If you would like to have a free consultation with one of our transformation experts, please send us an email at info at ascensionts.com. You've been listening to the Ascension Business Network. We hope you have a great day.